Heavenly Father, we um, do pray you'd be near to us tonight. Uh, it's a pretty difficult part of your word to uh, read through and hear how it speaks to us, but by your spirit, help us to see Christ and help us to see your will uh, for our lives in this part of your word. We do pray this for Christ's sake, Lord. Amen. So at the end of last week's passage, uh, if you remember, the last thing we heard was that, was that they had killed the enemy of the Jewish people, this guy called Haman, who had been the villain of the whole story up until that point. But the book doesn't end there because the story doesn't end there. Because even beyond the grave, this guy Haman was still a threat. Because he gave an edict that was signed with a king's signet ring, which meant it could never be taken back, it was written in stone, that even though Haman was dead, his plan to kill all the Jewish people was still very much alive. And at the start of chapter 8, it's been a little over two months since this edict was put in place, and the clock is ticking. A time bomb has been set. It's about to wipe out every Jewish person in Persia, but also all around the land. Something has to be done. And who else has to step up to the plate but the woman who was raised with such a time as this, Esther, she plucks up the courage to walk into the king's presence again. And Esther knows just as well as anyone, this is a risky thing. The king could just as easily reject her, which could mean her death. But again, the king ex extends his gold scepter. He invites her in. Esther takes this opportunity to plead for her people. She says, please, please write another edict that can undo the power of Haman's edict. For how can I bear to see the disaster that would come upon my people. She's come a long way from originally hiding that she was a Jewish person. She can't just sit back anymore and pretend that she's not because all Jewish people are about to be killed. That's the final drama in these final chapters of Esther. How will God step in here to, to uh, save his people from this unchangeable edict that's still hanging over their heads? Well, in the passage this evening, we're going to see that God steps in in three different ways through a great reversal, through relief for his people, and through a day to remember. Reversal, relief, remember. So first up, the first way that God steps in to save his people is through reversal. Which we've seen happening throughout the entire book. Everyone seems to have been on a journey from obscurity to honour or from honour to shame. And as we've seen over and over again in all of these stories... They seem to happen through a series of strange coincidences. It just so happened that there's a vacancy for queen in Persia. It just so happens that Esther is Jewish. She just happens to be beautiful. Esther just happens to be favoured by the king. So she becomes queen. Then Esther just happens to get the king's approval to ask for anything she wants. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai doesn't kneel down before him. He happens to find out Mordecai is Jewish. Then when Haman plans his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for his edict to get that revenge is almost a whole year away. Haman builds a gallows for Mordecai, but then the king just happens to walk in on Esther and Haman on the couch at the exact moment when the situation is most easily misunderstood. The gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happen to be ready when the king wants to hang Haman. Mordecai just happens to be in the right spot at the right time to hear the plot against the king's life which saves the king's life. A report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles, 
just so happens one night the king can't sleep, he has a bout of insomnia, then he wants to have this book uh, read to him, which happens to be about Mordecai saving his life, which starts Mordecai's rise to power. And all of these rises and falls, they're kind of wrapped up here at the start of chapter 8, in the first two verses where we read that, the same day King Ahasuerus awards Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, Mordecai enters the king's presence because Esther has revealed her relationship to Mordecai, the king uh, removes his signet ring, he recovered from Haman, gives it to Mordecai, and Esther puts him in charge of Haman's estate. So in these two short verses we hear of Haman's great fall, and the rise and rise of Esther and Mordecai. Every one of these people on Esther have had dramatic rises or falls, all because of God's quiet work orchestrating their lives in the background. But why? Why was God working to make them rise or fall? (coughs) Pardon me. It's pretty clear that Haman, he fell because of his foolish pride and his wickedness, but Esther and Mordecai... Why did they rise? I mean, sure, they both had moments where they courageously stood up for their people. Uh, They risked their lives to do so, but mostly, it seems like they didn't do a whole lot. It was mostly just because God God was graciously at work. It was right place at the right time. It had nothing to do with them, really. It was God who was orchestrating their lives behind the scenes. When I was 19, I was in my third year of a degree of creative writing at QUT. Uh, I was waiting to catch a bus to uni. Um, a bus came that I could have caught, but for no reason whatsoever, I thought, oh, I'll just sit here, I'll, I'll catch the next one. Uh, on the next bus, now uh, there was a friend I hadn't seen since high school, a friend from high school, and we caught up for a while. We found out he was studying on the same campus. Uh, then a few weeks later, I ran into this friend again, saw him on campus, and he he said to me, oh, it just so happens today is the day of open day for this Christian group on campus uh, I'm a part of. Do you want to come along and meet a few of my friends from there? Uh, I was a little bit sceptical. After all, Christians were awkward and weird, um, but I ended up going along, and I met a lot of people who challenged those thoughts I had of Christians, uh, and coincidences seemed to keep on happening to bring me more deeply into the lives of God's people. And somewhere in the mix of that all, I became a Christian. But it's not just me. I've heard so many stories of people coming to Christ, and in retrospect, they look back and see God's hand at work in so many different ways that it's hard to explain other than God's hidden hand being at work. And I hope you've all been encouraged through a few of those stories in your community groups this week as you've been thinking through those ideas. But these reversals have happened for each person throughout the book of Esther, but um, there's actually a bigger reversal that's happening throughout the whole book. If we zoom out a little bit, you'll see the whole book of Esther is actually one massive reversal. It's very purposefully shaped like that. It's very purposefully mirrored to look like one great reversal. Because at the start of the book, we see the king's splendor displayed at his feast. Then we see Mordecai save the king's life by hearing about the plot for his assassination. Then we see Haman's rise to power. Then the edict he tries to write wipes out, tries to wipe out all the Jewish people, starting with building a 75-foot-tall gallows in order to execute Mordecai on it. And at that point, everything seems lost, 
But at that point, God steps in, and at the heart of the book, uh, Mordecai rises to honour, and Haman descends into shame. But it doesn't stop there, because for the rest of the book, we see Haman being executed on the same gallows he'd built for Mordecai. From there, everything in the book is mirrored to the earlier chapters, except this time, for the salvation and honour of God's people. In the second half of Esther, God is reversing everything, all the heartache, all the shame. God steps in and starts reversing everything for good. So just to zoom in again on one of those reversals uh, of the two edicts in chapter 3 and chapter 8, I think you'll find there's a little bit more uh, than familiarity happening here, because in chapter 3, we saw the king give his signet ring to Haman, Here in chapter 8, the king gives his signet ring to Mordecai. We heard that the royal scribes were summoned. The order was written exactly as Haman commanded, now the exact same words for Mordecai. Then again, the exact same language. We hear about how the edict was intended for every leader of every province, every ethnic group in their own language. Then the actual edict almost seems to be copied and pasted, except this time we hear it's for the Jewish people to be allowed to defend themselves. The two edicts come into effect on the same day. The couriers hurried off, the law was issued, it's like deja vu all over again. The 13th day of Adar, it was going to be a day of fear and death for every Jewish person, but instead, now it's a day of relief. Just look at 9 verse 1, it says, The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the reverse happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Now, I was watching one of my favourite films this week uh, called Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, At the start of the film, the actress Claudia Cardinal, she arrives in town. Uh, She's expecting to be moving in with her new husband and his children. But when she's riding up to the family house on the horse and cart, She sees that a crowd is gathered, a crowd slowly moving away from the house, and she sees that the whole family is dead. She steps down, the woman comments to her, this was supposed to be your wedding day, and instead it's a funeral. That's kind of what happens here for Israel. The 13th day of the 12th month was supposed to be a day of Israel's funeral, but instead it's a day of celebration. God has turned the tables to just the opposite, just the reverse. Which we'll see even more fully in the next section, relief from chapter 9, verses 2 to 17. But we fast forward a few months to the day when both edicts come into effect. The first edict that allowed anyone to kill any Jewish person for any reason, and the second edict that allowed any Jewish person the right to defend themselves. Now, it might sound like it's a pretty level playing field at that point. You can attack them, they can defend themselves. But we read in verse 2 that in each of the provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. Now, it hardly seems like a fair fight at this point. It sounds like the Jewish people have the upper hand in this one. So why exactly is that? Well, again, we're told many of the ethnic groups of the land profess themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them and that all the leaders of the land aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. So again, everything seems to be lining up for God's people. 
because Mordecai had risen to power, because Esther had risen to power, everyone is afraid of the Jewish people so they can help defend themselves against all these attacks. Now, I realize this is a pretty brutal part of God's word uh, to be reading. It hardly seems like a happy ending that instead of the Jewish people being wiped out, they killed a bunch of people instead. Uh, But there are a few things I think that are meant to indicate to us the Jewish people. They weren't being bloodthirsty or trigger happy at all in here, but far from it. Firstly, like I said, the book is pretty clear that this was self-defense. They're only defending themselves against those who are seeking their lives. And just think, these people, if they knew the king's decree, they'd had months to think about it, they knew that Jewish people were prepared to defend themselves, they knew a lot of the leaders were going to side with the Jewish people because they were fearing Mordecai, but they still went ahead with the attack. How much hatred must they have had for these Jewish people? The hatred and violence couldn't be stopped by any reason. The hand of God wasn't very hidden anymore. They should have noticed things were obviously lining up for God's people. God was stepping in over and over again to support and save the Jewish people. But in the end, their hatred and anger, these enemies, they refused to see it. And we actually get a few more things that pretty clearly indicate to us the Jewish people they were only doing this out of necessity. One is that both Edicts, Hamans, and Mordecai's, they both make a mention of the victor's right to take their possessions as spoils of war. This was pretty common. If you beat your enemy, you could take their stuff. Uh, but we hear three times here, after every defeat, they didn't take any plunder. They clearly weren't in it for the plunder. They weren't in it for the victory. And if you can see the last verse there, the language it uses is very clearly, they gained relief from their enemies, which we'll see soon is what they celebrate. Not defeat, not bloodshed, not getting the plunder from their enemies, but relief, which is very intentionally the language of an oppressed people who have become free from oppression. Not of military conquest or of victory, but relief. Which brings us to our final section, remember. Uh, Where this day of God's deliverance is going to be remembered forever through a yearly feast, Uh, we read about it in verse 20. It says, Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all the King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing, their mourning into a holiday. There were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to another and to the poor. So instead of it being a time where they were seizing plunder, it was a time they gave gifts to the poor. Instead of it being a time of sorrow, it was a time of rejoicing. Instead of it being a time of loss, it was a time of relief. Everything was reversed. And that's kind of what this last section of Esther is all about, the feast of Purim, the yearly celebration to remember God's salvation in the book of Esther, to celebrate the relief from their enemies, not to celebrate the death of their enemies, but to celebrate relief and rest of no longer being under the threat of death. But one of the interesting things about this feast is its name, Purim, because we've heard its origin before and we're reminded here The pur uh, is literally a word for casting lots or of rolling dice. So it's effectively called the Feast of Dice, 
which is an interesting name, because by calling it that, they're in effect saying, this is what we want to remember, those dice that Haman threw to try and figure out from some divine answer when this slaughter was going to happen, this edict was going to come into place to kill the Jewish people. The dice told him, or the die told him, if you want to be singular there, that it was almost a year away. Uh, that's what we want to capture in this holiday, those dice. Uh, which my guess is, they're not just saying, let's remember the dice, as much as I love Yahtzee. They're saying the purr of the dice, that's the perfect symbol of how God's hand was at work to guide and save us. The purr is remembered and immortalized because the hidden hand of God is being celebrated forever there. Where everything seemed lost, God was at work to save his people and that's remembered every year. These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Which was absolutely worth celebrating for the Jewish people but I think for us, it's even more worthwhile remembering this and celebrating how God was at work to save his people, ultimately through Jesus. Because remember, Haman's edict, it wasn't just for the Jewish people in one small part of Persia. It was for all the Jewish people all across the kingdom, which meant that every Jewish person would have been killed. So if it wasn't for Purim, there would have been no Jesus. After hundreds and hundreds of years of God's promises and hope building of this Messiah coming through the Jewish people, it would have been just blotted out just like that. I mean, who knows how God would have worked? I'm sure he would have delivered them in another way, if not this way. But as far as I can tell, if it wasn't for these dice rolling a certain way, there would have been no Jesus. If it wasn't for Esther being beautiful and getting the king's attention, there would have been no Jesus. If it wasn't for Haman tripping on a couch, there would have been no Jesus. So we have to celebrate the hidden hand of God in this book to save his people on the hopes to come, but not just from physical death, because Jesus, he would save us from more than that, from the powers of sin, the powers of darkness as well, which Jesus did on the cross, because just like people in the book of Esther, we had an unchanging edict hanging over our heads the edict of the wages of sin is death. The price that we all have to pay for turning our back on God, for living lives that ignore and reject him, is death. But just like the book of Esther, that's not the final word because the second half of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When everything seemed said and done, we were lost in sin and death, God gave us a greater word of his grace and eternal life in Jesus. Where everything seemed lost, God was at work to save his people, and we remember that. We remember the cross of Jesus every year at Easter, just like they remembered Purim. The Israelites were delivered from the enemies and given relief and rest, and that was worth celebrating and remembering. And on the cross, Jesus delivered us from the powers of darkness against every appearance, because God's hidden hand was at work to use the most impossible-seeming situation to bring about the greatest victory and redemption in all of history, the rescue of all of God's people all around the world for all of history from the power of sin and death. Because the lot that we all deserve is the lot that Jesus took on the cross, but instead Jesus took on the judgment 
of our sin on the cross and he gave us the reward for his life. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a bigger reversal than anything that happens in the book of Esther. And if you think back to this image of the whole book being mirrored, what was at the centre? Well, I know it says honour and shame there, but what's that mean? Uh, It was talking about Haman's death on the gallows where that ultimate reversal happened, where Haman was brought to shame, Mordecai to honour. That moment where they hanged Haman on the gallows, he had prepared for Mordecai, then the king's anger subsided. Esther is mirrored, and this is the hinge in the middle, the place where everything pivots from shame to honour. It's a death that made the king's anger subside. When you look at it like that, it's pretty hard not to think that this book is preparing us for the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, it's the same for us. Everything hinges on that cross. Just look at this one example where you can't see a single thing, but I'll explain. This is from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, where we read about so many painful things. We read about uh, pain, suffering, futility, decay, and weakness. But even while looking those in the eye, we read about how they will be turned into glory, hope, freedom, adoption, redemption, and goodness. And what's the hinge? Well, at the very end there, it gives us that hinge. I'll make it so you can actually read it. It says, if God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with, us, with him grant us everything? The death of Jesus is the hinge where every painful and shameful moment in our lives will turn into honour, into glory, into hope, into freedom, into adoption, into redemption, into goodness, where God will reverse everything bad and painful for us. So just one more quote to finish on from a book called How to Inhabit Time by James K. Smith. Uh, he sums it up better than I could, so I'm just going to read this to finish. He says, Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy, my past, my story being taken up into God and God's story. God's presence in my life doesn't erase what's gone before. What God has prepared for us depends on what's gone before. This doesn't explain or justify the traumas we suffer. Grace isn't retroactive magic that makes evil good. Easter Sunday's light doesn't obliterate the long, dark shadows of Good Friday. Grace doesn't justify evil, grace overcomes it. What changes is who is with us and what God can do with our suffering. Shame makes me look at my past and see something hideous that makes me regret my existence. In grace, God looks at my past and sees a sketch of a work of art he wants to finish. In the hands of such an artist, all our weaknesses are openings for strength, the cracks to let the light in. So I'm just going to pray that for all of us now, that would be the case. Just join with me as as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for loving us with your gracious hand, uh, that we can trust that it's always at work to care for us. We do praise you because we can see that your grace in Christ does go back and fetch our past to give hope to our future. So if there's anything uh, in that now that you want to bring before God, anything that's been rattling around in your heart that you want to speak to your Father, I'm just going to give you a moment to say that prayer in your heart.
Now to him who was able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm just going to call the band up for the final song.